Cape Up is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. In 2012, foreign policy expert Robert Kagan argued that contrary to popular belief then, the United States was not in decline from its role as leader of the free world. But when we sat down at the German Marshall Fund's Brussels Forum in March, Kagan's point of view had changed. He said the nation's retreat from its international responsibilities under President Trump is actually something the American people want. There's no way in the world that an American public that was concerned about America's role in the world could have voted for Donald Trump. Here Kagan explained why this could mean the end of the world order America created after World War II right now. Bob Kagan, thanks very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. So at the start of your speech at Brussels Forum, you said that you had just dropped off or handed in your manuscript for your latest book to your editor. And the title of it is The Jungle Grows Back. What does that mean? What's the next book about? Well, it's about the liberal world order that everybody has been talking about. And um, my basic point is that although at the end of the Cold War, we sort of regarded the widespread of democracy, the prosperity, the lack of major wars between great powers as a kind of norm, the new norm. You know, if you think back on people talking about the end of history, um, it was sort of like an end point of human evolution. Um, My argument is that the liberal world order is an incredible achievement. It, in fact, is sort of an aberration from history, The, the, the situation that I just described is one that you can't find anywhere else in 5,000 years of recorded history. Um, and therefore, we need to understand that in, that this liberal world order is, is an artificial construction. It, it isn't just an evolution uh, of mankind, uh, humankind, and uh, it, 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 it won't stay. And that the forces of nature, human nature, the forces of history going back uh, centuries uh, inclines to to sort of over overrun mm-hmm. this order unless it's actively protected. Right. You said that you said in your speech that this is this is not a normal situation. And then you also said you said and correct me if I'm wrong that you said what an active defiance of human history this basically this liberal world order an active defiance. Yeah. Because again, um, if you. You know, we tend to view from our pers- our perspective, we view the sort of horrors of the first half of the 20th century, you know, two world wars, Hitler, Stalin, as sort of bizarre detours on the long path of progress. Um, and we sort of think that could never happen again. Uh, I would argue that history, if history was pointing in any direction, it had been pointing in that direction. That if you look at least from the 19th century on, uh, you could see how the normal development was heading toward those conflicts. And even uh, after the breakdown of the order that Britain and Europe had created in the 19th century, that people like Hitler and Stalin would emerge. And so my point is that that's always there. And if we have a complete breakdown of order, we will see those kinds of horrors again. So is that to say that we haven't seen those breakdowns yet? Or are we in the middle of them? 
I would say, if you know, to use the metaphor, that the jungle is starting to grow back, and you can see it in a lot of different ways. You could see it in the sort of upheaval against liberal democracy in Europe, you know, all the populist nationalist movements, which are really about tribalism. Tribalism and, you know, uh, falling back on tribe and family is a very human, it's a very basic human tendency. Similarly, we, you know, obviously for some years now, we've seen the rise of geostrategic, geopolitical competition with the rise of China, the resurgence of sort of Russian ambition. Those are obviously ancient tendencies that all nations have. We, in, within the liberal world order, sort of put geopolitical ambition to the side, you know. Germany was a politically, uh, politically and militarily ambitious country for decades, and then it stopped, uh, similarly for Japan. And so that was the way that we sort of put an end to that cycle of conflict. But you can see those elements of the jungle of human nature and history, you know, Growing back in. So, so in this jungle, then, given everything that you just said, the 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 person who's been keeping the jungle at bay has been mowing the lawn and pulling the weeds and whacking down all the brush has been the United States. Talk further about the role of the United States in keeping the jungle at bay, in maintaining the the liberal world order. Yes, and let me preface this by saying I'm not under any illusion that America has had a perfect foreign policy. We've made our shares of mistakes, as everyone can document, from Vietnam to Iraq. And, you know, I would only say that all other great powers also make have made mistakes. That's just the nature of the human beast. But the, the remarkable thing that the United States did after World War II, which no country in history had ever done before, was in a way to define our national interests so broadly that they became international responsibilities. Normal nations don't have international responsibilities. They look out for their own. Um, but the United States basically, and it was in kind of enlightened self-interest, said we've got to uh, organize the world so that the things that we witnessed in the 1930s and which dragged us into war don't happen again. So the United States basically made itself an onshore power in Europe and in Asia uh, in a way to create zones of peace there, um, putting an end to German and Japanese ambitions, steering uh, Germany and Japan toward economic uh, ambition, economic success, which then made it possible for the neighboring countries in those regions to, to worry less about being attacked and also then ultimately to pursue economic goals, which I think could have, the United States basically provided the sort of underpinning uh, which allowed this great economic growth that we've seen over, over the past five decades to take place, and also to allow democracy to flourish, because one of the great obstacles to democracy is war. You know, when nations have to prepare for war all the time, it tends to, it tends to detract from democracy. They look to strong leaders. Uh, so sp speaking of strong leaders, one of the things that you said in, in your speech was that President Obama was the, quote, first post-consensus president. What does that mean? The consensus I'm talking about is uh, a, a fairly broad consensus that began after World War II and continued up into the post-Cold War period, which said the United States had to play this role. Whether you, you know, uh, certainly the founders of the post-war order, like 
Atchison and Truman saw the United States as the as the sort of critical element in making this liberal world order possible. Bill Clinton talked about the indispensable nation. Um, I think that because of Iraq and Afghanistan, because of the economic crisis, but just more generally, after the end of the Cold War, a lot of Americans increasingly been asked, "Why are we doing this?" Right. Uh, I, I think the memory of why the United States had created this order. I mean, the world wars and Hitler and Stalin, etc. They were kind of in history books. They weren't real for people. And they, most Americans felt like, well, the, the Soviet Union's gone. We can go back to being, literally, Gene Kirkpatrick wrote in 1990, a normal power with normal foreign policy. Um, it took a while for that to sink in, but I believe that when President Obama ran and was elected, he correctly believed that the, that the American people wanted a kind of retrenchment of American involvement in the world, and he carried that out. A, what is a normal foreign policy? Right. Uh, right. I mean, most nations look after their national interests fairly narrowly defined, as in a physical security from attack uh, and an ability to have an economy that isn't squelched by somebody else. So uh, if you look at, or, or, or to carry out geopolitical ambitions, uh, rising powers, even the United States in the 19th century, as it was amassing power and amassing wealth, Americans didn't think they had any responsibility to anybody other than themselves. I mean, maybe they had this kind of paternalistic attitude toward Latin America. You know, they were going to be uh, the big daddy to everybody. But even then, that was more rhetoric than anything else. It's unusual for a nation to say, 3,000 miles away, we have an ongoing responsibility to create a certain kind of a situation uh, to maintain our forces overseas. You know, most nations in the world, in fact, almost all nations in the world, don't have even the luxury of having forces that they can deploy indefinitely thousands of miles away. The United States, simply for reasons of geography, uh, occupies a unique place in world history. Talk about, I was going to ask you about that. Talk about the geography and how that factors in. Yeah, I mean, you know, we learn as in, in school about how the United States is, you know, has got two oceans on one side or the other, but it really is a significant geopolitical fact that the United States, of, if you think about all the great powers in history, think about all, like, think about Germany, think about uh, even Britain, think about China, think about Russia, they're surrounded by other great powers. And so, they had to always keep a significant amount of their force. Britain was a bit of a, uh, an exception to this, but everybody else had to keep their force on their own territory to protect themselves from the other great powers. That's what the story of Europe is, everybody protecting each other against each protecting themselves against each other. The United States, because it's surrounded by two oceans, because its neighbors are not great powers, they're fairly, you know, they don't pose a real threat to the United States, uh, was able to take its forces and send, you know, eight million soldiers to Europe without worrying about the effect on its on its immediate national security. That, that's just a, an entirely unusual uh, situation. It's what permits the United States to play this role of being an onshore force in Asia and Europe indefinitely, um, which I think, you know, we could have a different kind of world order than this one, but 
no nation could play that role. China can't play that role, just almost by definition. Well, why not? Why doesn't China? Because I mean, they, China, they've got the money. They do, but they're also surrounded. And the people, come to think of it. No, no, they do. But if, first of all, think about how different Chinese history is uh, than, than American history. China's goal traditionally was to be the dominant power in its region. They didn't even want to think about the rest of the world. You know, at a certain point in, I don't know whether it was the 16th century, the Chinese destroyed their own navy uh, because they didn't want to be involved. They felt, you know, they, you talk about the Middle Kingdom. Uh, what they mean is they're, they're in the center of the universe. And all they wanted was to sort of make sure everybody around them was paying respect and tribute, etc. They don't really have a tradition of global expansion. And now... And for some time, whatever else is true, no matter how strong they get, Japan is also going to be really strong. Korea is a rich and uh, highly populated country. India is on China's border. Uh, China is surrounded by other very substantial powers um, who, by the way, all look to the United States for their ultimate security. So think about the difficulty that China has. They have, to, as they rise, and this is already happening, their neighbors get nervous. Uh, their neighbors are strong anyway, but they also have this superpower across mm -hmm. the ocean. That's a difficult situation, which the Chinese right now are grappling with. How do they deal with it? They would like us, the United States, simply to withdraw from the region. That's their best, easiest option. Well, and a great example of that is the withdrawal of the United States from TPP. I mean, folks think about TPP as a trade as a trade right. pact, but it really was a geopolitical pact where these nations, some of them strong in their own right, looking to the United States to protect them militarily, but also economically from China. So, how does that factor into into your analysis? No, I mean this is. It, this is, I would say, this is part of the jungle growing back. I right. mean, we, we, we as, you know, there's always been a question, um, and there certainly has been a question for some time now, is the United States really going to stay in Asia that long? You know, if you ask most Asians, the United States being in Asia is a historical anomaly, right? I mean, we're used to it, sort of. But from their point of view, if you think back on, you know, from the Chinese point of view, let's see, in 2,000 years, right. this has been going on for 50 years, you know, mm -hmm. what's up with that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a general expectation that in the normal course of events, the United States pulls back to Hawaii. Now, we have been saying no, 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 and when Barack Obama announced his pivot to Asia, that the intention was to say, no, 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 we're still here, uh, we're not leaving, but that doubt is always there. And I think the Chinese, in the best of all worlds, would, uh, would like to just see us fade away. Now. That will then immediately create a problem, which is that if Japan returns to a kind of independent, normal foreign policy, the prospects of another Sino-Japanese conflict rises substantially. And that's the part of, you know, people in the United States, including very serious strategic thinkers who call for the United States to sort of let Japan handle the problem out there. They're rich. Let Korea handle the problem. They're rich. What that doesn't take into account is that is a recipe for a return to the wars and conflicts and tensions that existed throughout the period before 1945. Well, not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but since we're in the region, you mentioned Japan and China, what do you make of, of 
the prospect of a meeting between the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, and President Trump, and how that factors into the geopolitical state. Well, I must say that although I take seriously everybody's concern that Trump is going to have a nuclear war with Korea, I've actually never believed that that was his intention. I think if you look back at his you know, whole career as a businessman, uh, getting up in somebody's face and barking at them and trying to uh, sort of intimidate them uh, always then leads to, okay, let's sit down at the table and make a deal. So I think his intention all along has been to sit down with the North Koreans. Um, my expectation is that he won't get any better deal than anybody else <laughs> has gotten over the last 25 years. But he'll come home and say, I did it. I forced them to the table. I got a darn good deal. They promised to do X, Y, Q, and Z. And that's the way this thing, I think, will end. And he will not have been the first American president to sit at the table with the North Koreans to try to hammer out a deal that then doesn't really... We have been buying the same rug for <laughs> 25, 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, no, I, that's, that's where this goes, I think. K-Pop is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Right now, go to zeal.com and enter promo code CAPEUP to get $20 off your first in-home massage. That's promo code CAPEUP. One of the things you said in, in your speech, coming back to broadly about China, you said, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the rise of China was inevitable. Brexit was inevitable. Why were those two things, and throw in some of the others, why do you think those things were inevitable? I don't want to say China's rise was inevitable, I think, because, you know, it's, it's what nations do. As nations acquire wealth, there's a great phrase out in Asia, which the Japanese have used, which the Chinese have used, you know, uh, rich nations, strong army. Um, it's just, it's a natural course of events that when a nation gets rich and has a kind of certainly a very strong memory of being a dominant power, that they want to return to to that. I don't mean to say that Brexit was inevitable. I don't think it was. Obviously, it was a very close vote. Uh, it was bungled by Cameron, etc. I just want to say that if you pull the lens back a little bit and you look at Britain and England's relationship to the continent over the centuries, Britain has always wanted to keep its distance from the continent. They've never wanted to be deeply involved. This, this in British history, has been an anomaly, this period from 1945 on. And it's really only because they were also in with the United States. So even though I think Brexit is a terrible idea, I think it's bad for global stability, etc., I can't say that you have to be surprised that the British people moved in that direction. Mm -hmm. And now let's talk about President Trump. Was his election, given the course of human history, was his election inevitable? I mean, no, obviously. But the way I look at it, you have to separate Trump from the sort of phenomena in America that made Trump's election possible. I think of this election as similar to the election of 1920, um, in the sense that you had a kind of uh, rebellion of a large part of the country uh, against a lot of the rapid changes that were occurring in their in their lives, which were uh, many of which are cultural, uh, some of which are you know there's a deep racism in the United States, and so 
you know, in that period, there was a perception after a progressive presidents that, you know, uh, blacks were moving in and, and were getting more uh, power in the system, which in the 1920s mm-hmm. is ridiculous, but in their context. So you had the ex- an explosion of the Klan in that period. You also had powerful anti-immigration. We, you know, we en- enacted the first really restrictive immigration uh, uh, laws in the 1920s, including what sort of Trump's attitude is, which is, yeah, we like those Northern European white folk. Yeah, the you Norwegians. Know? Right, right, right. Norway's good. Yeah, we like that, you know. So, um, and there was a revolt against sort of science versus religion. The world was changing. The diff- So you had this kind, there's always this sort of seething cauldron of anxieties and whatnot in the United States. Uh, and again, I think particularly among whites and white males who see themselves being, having their privileges diminished. Um, The difference was that in those days, parties controlled who was going to be the nominee, not popular factions, uh, not populist movements. So in the 1920 election, which I think was a revolutionary election, we got Warren Harding, Mm -hmm. who was just, you know, some mook, you know, off the turnpike. (laughs) And... Um, because the party, that's who they chose. If you think about the 1930s and, you know, the movement of Huey Long or Father Coughlin or Charles Lindbergh, uh, very powerful, you know, with huge followings, uh, they were never going to get a nomination, you know, in either party because the parties weren't going to go in that direction. So I think that what happened in uh, 2016 is we had one of these periodic revolts against a lot of these changes that are going on very rapidly for some people out there. They just, they look at all these rights being distributed and they just are like, what's going on here? Um, But the party, Republican Party, lost control of the nominating process almost immediately um, and, and therefore allowed this to happen. The equivalent in the Democratic Party would have been if the Democratic Party had never become less democratic by adding superdelegates and sort of mm-hmm. controlling the process, you might have had Bernie Sanders as the nominee. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, that, you know. <laughs> well, that if that had happened, that w- I probably would have done to the Democratic Party what you did with the Republican Party because – if if I'm not mistaken, you left the Republican Party as a result yeah. of of They're Trump's Trump, yeah. Trump's nomination. Why was that such an affront to you? I'd never been a very you know strong Republican. I most I'm, I care about foreign policy, so whichever whichever I was a supporter of the Clinton administration. You know, right. whichever whichever party is going to conduct this foreign policy, that's the one I'm going to support. Right now, of course, neither party is going to conduct this foreign policy, so I have a problem. But uh, but I was particularly, I just felt that any party whose leaders were willing to sort of roll over for a guy like Donald Trump in the sort of pitiful way that the Republican leadership did during the campaign, I just didn't want to be any part of. And I also detected what I should have been more aware of before, there's a lot of people in the Republican Party I don't want to be associated with. Are you surprised, given your your tenure in Washington, your tenure in government at the State Department, that more Republicans, particularly those in leadership, have not stepped forward to say no to President Trump and all of the things that he's done, particularly when it comes to um, what he's done to the way the Republican Party used to be viewed on fundamental issues such as foreign policy and American power. 
and Russia. And, yeah, and, uh, and like, Russia. Where they were the most hawkish anti-Russian party, and then they flipped. I mean, look, the 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 sort of the sort of idealist in me is, was initially shocked, but the historian in me said, and I and the I guess pragma, pragmatic view of the situation is. Politicians only care about one thing, which is getting reelected. And they really almost, sometimes other things play a role and there are special circumstances, but by and large, in the normal course of events, politicians just care about getting reelected. They, Republican politicians were faced with this wave within their mm -hmm. own party. Even today, you might, you, there is no percentage for Republican, even if they think they're gonna lose because of Trump, there's still no percentage in them turning against Trump because 85% of the party backs Trump. So if they go against him, they're gone. Uh, look at, you know, look at Jeff Flake, look at Corker, you mm -hmm. know. So I think that, uh, you know, profiles and courage among politicians <laughs> are not a norm. That's also not normal. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. You know, Bob, in your 2012 book, um, The World America Made, there are a couple of concepts in here that, that you mentioned I want you to talk about. One was, you, one of your main arguments was that the United States is not in decline. And the, the concept that I wanted you to talk about was superpower suicide. Talk about that and how that factors into your new book, your forthcoming book about um, the jungle growing back. Yeah. Well, I you know, the point I wanted to make, among other things, in uh, in that uh, 2012 book um, was that everybody was saying America was in decline. It was the post-American world, and I would I was just saying that by any sort of objective measure, I just didn't think that was true. There was in that view, there's a certain kind of rosy glass look at the past. Everybody was always saying we used to be able to do anything we wanted. We used to be able to tell everybody what to do, and they would listen to us. And my first response was, really, when was that? I missed that whole period <laughs> in American history. But also, again, our our situation is so advantageous because of our wealth and our geography and the difficulties that other powers have that I was describing before rising without you know creating a ban against them in their own region is very advantageous to us but the but what I was concerned about in 2012 was that the American people were just not interested in playing this role so we might not be in physical decline but if our will to continue pushing back the jungle which we'd been doing since 1945 if that will was gone or if the understanding of why we should do it had been lost or whatever then yes we could you know uh, basically give up this position and the world would shape itself differently because of our lack of willingness and then yeah that does lead to decline well needless to say by the time I've now written this book I am not only concerned about that but I feel like yes that's what's happening I mean there's no way in the world that an American public that was concerned about America's role in the world could have voted for Donald Trump now I think that they felt. I think you could feel that you could uh, elect uh, President Obama and re-elect him and he would be adjusting America's position in the world, but he certainly wasn't saying, I mean, I'm critical of the, of the way Obama conducted foreign policy, but it wasn't that he was sort of repudiating the whole sort of liberal order compact and America's role in it. He was trying to do it, he would say, in a different way. I think it was an ineffective way. But Trump came in 
and really ran on the, the premise, insofar as he talked about foreign policy, that this liberal world order was bad for us. That we were getting screwed in the liberal order, and we were doing all these things for everybody else, and what were they doing for us, which was a normal, that's, that's what, he was selling normalcy in foreign policy, and the American people were, were basically fine with it. And by the way, in that campaign, the only person who was sticking up for the old foreign policy was Hillary Clinton, and she was getting clobbered for that. You had Bernie Sanders, who was basically Trumpist. Trump on the left. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, you had Obama who was at least retrenching. If you think about the four most formidable figures on the political scene, they were Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton was in a lonely place mm -hmm. in terms of foreign policy. And even she had to repudiate this Trans-Pacific Partnership, right. which she had helped negotiate. Do, do you really believe that if she had become president of the United States that she would have followed through and not signed TPP? I think I we were always, you know, since we thought we spent a lot of time thinking she was going to win, so we were all kind of trying to game this out in our own minds. So there was this sort of sense that she'd give it a year, she'd tinker around the edges, right. she'd give some things to labor, and then we'd wind up signing it. Yes, right. that's what I think could have happened. But... I do not believe that the mere election of Hillary Clinton was going to turn the country around. And she would have had a very hard time if she wanted to continue this indispensable nation approach to the world. She would have been fighting public opinion on it, even then. You know, one thing that, could, that concerns me about this retrenchment, the decline, this superpower suicide, is that... We have a president of the United States who does nothing about the cyber attack on our on our nation, Russia. Um, we have a, a president who fights with our allies here uh, in Europe uh, and around the world, who seems to really love despots and dictators and and strong men. And with the United States saying to the rest of the world, and you mentioned this before particularly with Japan, you're rich. Why don't you take care of your own national security needs? Once the world realizes that they actually can maintain some sense of, of order without the United States, who's to say that if the United States were to elect a rational leader again who believes in the liberal world order, that when that new president comes in, the world says, that's okay, America. We, we've got this. We now know how to do this. Isn't there a danger in that? No. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that the other world powers actually sort of know that they can't manage this without the United States. And mostly what they've been engaged in until Trump makes it impossible is a tremendous amount of wishful thinking Oh, don't worry about Trump. At least, you know, we've got Mattis and McMaster and these right. other people. The wise and, and that uh, they've been very reluctant to. Uh, to sort of see how bad things are. But now that he's picking trade fights with allies, they're beginning to wonder. But, you know, and the, but the Japanese are clinging to the hope that Trump is still with them. I mean, and he, you know, Trump and Abe have this great relationship that Abe brilliantly engineered. And so the Japanese think that, okay, we're, we're still okay, you know. But nobody out there, and including in Europe, 
believes that it'll be fine if the United States departs the scene. They're all worried about it. In fact, this happened periodically over the last 30 years. Most of the times, Europeans would be carping about, you know, how we did, Americans did this terrible thing and that terrible thing. But then whenever something would happen, like Clinton's impeachment, all of a sudden they're saying, whoa, 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 you got, don't leave, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that, that the world understands what this means. Uh, and therefore are going to cling to this alliance for as long as we can even look like we're interested in it. Robert Kagan, Senior Fellow with the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings, my colleague as a columnist at the Washington Post and author of five books, or soon to be six, uh, including The World America Made in 2012 and The Jungle Grows Back, which is coming out later this year. Thank you very much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.